we're here to tell you a little bit about how this volume came about and to talk about translating Brecht. And I thought I'd start off really by going back a little bit in history to tell you about the origins of the, of the project. Um, I've been involved in um, Brecht translation and edition in English for quite a long time now. I worked together with um, John Willett, in the old days John Willett, who was one of the very first people to translate Brecht's plays into English. Um, and when he passed on in 92, I think it might have been, um, the publisher asked me to come in and finish off the edition little knowing quite how much more there was still in German that could be translated into English. And so I set myself a list of priorities and tried to persuade them. And for some time it was very difficult indeed. Um, Matthew is and was a commercial publisher and they had to be persuaded that each volume would make money, which is always a difficult thing to do. And um, they also changed hands Several times they were bought up by bigger concerns. And at one point um, they were owned by Random House, and which was owned by Bertelsmann at the time. And at that point, Barbara Brecht, Brecht's daughter, said, I'm not having any of Daddy's books published by them. So there was a complete hiatus for several years. So a lot of what I've been engaged in over the last 20 years has been publishing politics rather than translating, um, or perhaps I should call it diplomacy, trying to get on with the publishers in Britain and in Germany, trying to get on with the heirs, with the estate, because all of this work is copyright, of course. And then in recent years, relatively recently, Methuen, the Methuen drama list, which included most of the Brecht, but not all of it, was bought up by Bloomsbury, and although it was actually the same commissioning editor as it had ever been, because he moved across from Matthew into Bloomsbury, um, suddenly he developed a new enthusiasm and was more easily persuaded they had more money. Harry Potter, basically, pays for, for Brecht in English. Um, <coughs> they, they had more money and they were prepared to invest in, in more volumes. And on the back of that... I started thinking about the poems. I'd already talked to John in the old days about what we should do, because John brought out a, a large collection of Brecht poems called Poems 1913 to 1956. And the problem with that title was, how could you then produce a second volume? You couldn't call it More Poems, 1930, or The Other Poems, anything like that. And so we really came to the conclusion that we had to chop up the whole thing and start again. And my plan initially was precisely to do that, to take out the translations from that old edition that I liked, um, and to commission lots of more translators to add to them and do a whole new volume. But, um, well, I suppose at that point, more or less, I started talking this project over with David, and David was quite keen, not to say very keen, um, and Barbara Brecht said she absolutely didn't like that model and she thought one of the faults with um, the old edition had been that there were too many voices and she wanted to have as few translators as possible and we should do it ourselves. And I was quite nervous about that. David, being a very experienced translator, um, was less nervous and has been my mentor throughout this no, really. <laughs> I, as long as I live, I will be grateful to him for talking me into this amazing project. So between them, Barbara Brecht and David talked me into taking on a volume like this, which then we couldn't persuade Matthewan to publish. Um, that was upsetting, actually. <laughs> it was extraordinary. We went to, we went to London we, <laughs> and they said, we don't do poetry, we don't understand poetry, we can't sell poetry. You have to go to a specialist poetry publisher for that. That was a different breed altogether, a different species. Um, 
And with the help then of uh, Zurkamp, the German publisher, um, we found a different publisher for the poems. So it's not with Matthew, and it's with Norton, the American publisher. And um, we started work. We started work considerably before we had a contract. When did we get the contract, do you remember? It seems kind of quite recent. <laughs> it does, yes. I think, I think we got the contract about five, six years ago, something like that. But we had already done quite a lot by then. Um, and then we went into a more intensive period of trying to translate. Um, and I suppose I should... Can I hand over to you? To yeah, because it, it's by, the book is... The volume is by both of us, but w the way we proceeded with the translations was each was responsible for quite large sections of it, entire collections within this collected poems. And Tom or I then worked alone on those translations so they are each of us separate work having done them when the whole thing was finished um, we handed over our each handed over his versions to the other uh, to check in the sense of well first of all for lexical accuracy because poetry is not a matter of, of as it were lexically exactly transferring every syllable but you don't want to make mistakes you really don't want to be shown up as having made a, an error of, of grammar or, or whatever else. So we very carefully and separately still checked each other's versions against the original. And that was also valuable because it's a huge undertaking. Um, there are lots and lots of poems and inevitably, no matter how many times you've gone over it, the other person might, not often, but occasionally find that you'd left a line out or that you know, something was missing, or the stanza had somehow got in the wrong order. So it was, it was valuable for that as well. And Brecht has a, perhaps a reputation of being a very direct and communicative poet. But actually, the more we worked on this, we, the more we discovered that there are, in fact, lots of poems which are quite obscure and ambiguous, yeah. and it's difficult to understand what they mean. And it's difficult for a German to understand what they mean sometimes as well. So um, we really did need to pay attention. Yeah, and that was another valuable part of this, looking separately at each other's translations. That is to say, you would, um, you would read the German, you would read the English against it, and you would yourself perhaps have understood lines. This is, this is not a, mat a matter of lexical error or correctness. You would simply have understood the lines in the context of the poem differently. And then each put that to the other, but the final decision was the decision of the person who first translated the poem. So you had, an, I think, a, a good combination of absolute autonomy, but in a very Brechtian way, I like to think. It was collaborative in the sense that you wished to know um, how this might be improved. You were then responsible for the, for, for the final version. So um, all the poems in the index say it's either TK or or DC, who was the final um, translator of it. So. Yeah, and, and um, there's one other person we should perhaps mention as well who tried to keep tabs on all of this. I was very lucky for most of this work to have a research assistant, Charlotte Ryland. And there are over 2,000 poems here, and her job was to maintain an index saying which ones we'd already done and which ones were still to do and who'd done them. Because despite the fact that we'd carved up the oeuvre, it wasn't always easy to be absolutely sure. The, the German edition, for example, that we were working from, quite often does variant versions of the same poem or even um, publishes the same poem more than once in slightly different contexts as part of a collection and then as part of an uncollected series or something like that. Obviously, we didn't want to make the mistake of translating it twice, um, and we didn't want to make the mistake of missing anything. We have missed some yeah. <laughs> that we meant to include. We had to be selective from the outset, I should say. Um, not, not hugely selective. There are, as I said, over 2,000 poems here. Um, Brecht, um, sorry, over 1,200 poems, I should say. Um, in the German edition, there are something like 2,000, but they can only get to that figure by including these several iterations of basically the same poem. 
um, variants and fragments and songs from plays and even bits of spoken verse from plays, which I don't think are poems at all, suddenly appear as poems in the German um, edition. And we cut all of those out. And then we were a little bit selective in some of the rest of the work as well, um, trying to keep an eye on including the important things. But I have been embarrassed a couple of times to discover, uh, well, really a couple of times, there are two poems that I would like to have got in there that for some reason we managed to miss, despite Charlotte's eagle eye. Uh, it was a difficult undertaking. The, 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 the collections that Brecht actually published in his lifetime, that is to say he oversaw the order of the poems, those we did entire. We left, there's no, there are no gaps in those. So the domestic breviary from early on, the Svendborg poems, the Buchel elegies, those are in, in, entirely there. Um, and they're published also then for the first time in English as entire collections, as cycles, as series, as yeah. Brecht intended. And I think that was very important to maintain that, to maintain the order. While we're still on the business of translation, it, it, it's immensely rewarding to be translating Brecht because he had the most extraordinarily eclectic mind. He was a magpie. Some just said he was a plagiarist. He was certainly that. But he was open to world literature and he took what he needed from absolutely all over the place. He was not himself a very gifted linguist. He got by in English, certainly. Yeah, no, he, his English was better than he made out. Yes, <laughs> But he, he had around him this um, collective of immensely gifted people, particularly women like Margarete Steffin, Ruth Berlau, who did an awful, and Elisabeth Hauptmann, who did an awful lot of translating for him, actually provided him with a text that he could then work from. And when I say eclectic, and it's, quite, it's quite salutary, this, because I've... I've quite often talked to, or people have asked me, who are your influences? And, and there's also a kind of quite dangerous movement abroad now. You can see its respectable beginnings, which rather suggests that if you start writing poetry now, poetry really begins with you in this enlightened age of, of, of Me Too and all the rest of it. That is to say that you don't go beyond that because it's a lot of dead white Anglo-Saxon males and what could you possibly learn from them. Now, this sounds facetious, but I've actually met with this as an, as it were, a seriously advanced argument that it starts now, poetry is now. Brecht had no such notion at all. He took from where... So, for example, you'd be wrong to think of Rudyard Kipling as just an imperialist. He's a very, very fine poet as well, and a very good writer of short stories. Brecht knew very, perfectly well what his origins were, but lifts from Kipling because he got a sort of popular accent, he's writing about a riffraff quite often, the, the, the soldiers themselves, so he lifts things he took from all over the world like that really, from classical, highest classical forms from drama and, and, and poetry Chinese, Japanese yeah. There are several different elements to this, partly um, it is just an interest in what other poets have done um, and in what he can learn, he's very aware of poetry as a, as a craft from really early on, there's an early notebook entry when he's a teenager with a sonnet, and then underneath he says, this is my first attempt at a sonnet, it's not very good, I must practice. He's well aware that it doesn't just come out, <laughs> and that there's work to be done, and he uses world literature, really world literature, he uses poetry from all over the place, as he can get hold of it, to learn what you can do as a poet. But the, the other side to it is um, an awareness of tradition which you might say was respectful or disrespectful. He just wants to be part of it. Yeah. He sees himself in that tradition. And sometimes it seems arrogant because he lists people. You know, he says, Ovid, Dante, Brecht. Um, but sometimes it, it, it comes across as an awareness, a respectful awareness of a tradition which he can partake in. And I think that's important as it, well. It's terribly important. Again, it's, it is, it's a poetry festival like this. It is, it is really worth insisting on the fact that you can't just start from, as it were, your own ground zero and go on. And the best instruction you can give to poets beginning is read. 
read all over the place from all possible traditions that you can get your hands on. If you speak the language, fine. If you don't, get translations. You can, make, you can get by with very little of a foreign language if you get facing texts and actually work out how it, how it, where the lines break, whether this is similar or not similar. And it's everybody prior, you know, I can't say just prior to this generation, took it terribly seriously, this business of having to know at least your own literature very, very thoroughly indeed. Because it's, it's axiomatic for me that no form ever actually dies. They may go into desuetude, they may vanish for centuries, but once the language has ever used them, they are there as a possibility for recovery and reuse in entirely different circumstances, in entirely different voices. And Brecht understood that fully because you see him taking forms, which form always comes with a sort of, uh, oh, you could say a kind of presuppositions attached to it of class, of gender, of origin, all that kind of thing. Well, they, they had that perhaps then, but why not take this exact same form and twist it to its contrary? which is what he did with the domestic breviary very early on. Domestic breviary is set out as a handbook of prayer, sort of helping you through the week with prayers. And it's the most blasphemous single volume ever published by anything, and very, very funny. But actually, all the forms repeat the liturgical forms and the prayer book forms of both the Catholic and the Lutheran tradition. He knew precisely what he was doing. He was being very, very offensive to say something which is saying it very funnily as well, very wittily, which was absolutely pertinent to the years immediately after the First World War. So. The first edition was actually set out with, with two columns per page, like a um, Bible or a prayer book, and red edge. Um, uh, we also discovered as we went through if we didn't know it already, which I think we largely did, but some were a surprise that Brecht did a lot of translation himself um, from these other traditions. Uh, it starts off with um, Greek and Latin and ancient Chinese, um, which, of course, he didn't know. Um, he used Arthur Whaley's Chinese. Um, his Latin was quite good. Actually, we should add that to the English. Yes, right, yeah. He could clearly read perfectly happily in Latin. And sometimes his German takes on a slightly Latin flavour. You can do that in German because German is a very highly inflected language, so it's got lots of grammatical forms that show you the function of a word in a sentence. Whereas in English, we have to put the words in the right order. In Latin, I remember my Latin teacher in school telling me that my style was good when basically all I did was translate it first of all and then throw all the words in the air and put them down in a different order. And he said my style was good. That seemed to be something you could do in Latin. And you can do it in German as well, and, and Brecht sometimes takes some of those ideas, takes some of those hints from Latin. Um, but I was also a little bit surprised to find myself translating Brecht's translations of Baudelaire, Baudelaire poems in here, um, one of which was clearly only a draft. Brecht hadn't really quite finished. Um, it, it feels rough. Um, it's, not, it's formally not even close to the French. Um, whereas the other one, which was done at exactly the same time, does rhyme and, and is formally close to the French. So presumably that was the direction in which he was going. But it still seemed interesting to have a go. Um, it's perhaps a bit of a curiosity in, in the volume in that it's hard to tell whether it's a translation of Baudelaire or a translation of Brecht and what the difference is. And, you know, how you can see through those layers. You can only really see through those layers if you have a three-line parallel edition, which we don't have, unfortunately. There's, there's one other thing about translating him, which I think Tom and I both agree on, is that he's, the, the tone... There's, there are some languages where it's very difficult, or some traditions of poetry, some traditions, where it's actually very difficult to move up the, up the um, levels low, medium, and high. And French classical tragedy, for example, there were, there were certain things which absolutely are not allowed to occur. There was a big row when, um, when Othello was first translated into French because they used the word mouchoir, 
for handkerchief. It is really a handkerchief. And there was, an, there was actually an outroar, uproar in the theatre that the, the word mouchoir should be used in the context of even a translation of a Shakespeare play in the classical context. Whereas the English tradition in Shakespeare, you can move quite easily up and down like that. And Brecht is absolutely adept, sometimes within the same poem, of just shifting up and down the registers from, from really very high pathos to absolutely the pit's obscenity, sometimes within the, the same poem and certainly often within the collection. He's also a very great ironist. And that's, I think, one thing the English, at least some of the English, some of the British still do have, is, and God do we need it, a sense of irony. <laughs> a sense of irony. It, it was sort of inborn in him and it was very congenial to be translating somebody who was, you'd only be a thorough ironist, because thorough ironists believe in, as it were, nothing or the impartiality of, of all things, but irony used as a way of, of getting at the truth, which is what he does mostly. That's, to our mind, I think, deeply sympathetic. I think what I'm saying is that it, it, it goes into English, the English language of the British Isles and beyond American, perhaps more easily than it goes into into other languages. I'm not really competent to say that, but I think French has more trouble doing Brecht than, 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 uh, than English does. There are things about, about the verse forms as well. I mean, I suppose I should say, first of all, that Brecht does write poetry in almost every imaginable form. So he does try to write classical hexameters sometimes, which is very difficult in German, and Alexandrines as it is in English, very difficult to do, um, simply because the stress patterns don't work out very well in, in English. Um, he writes an awful lot of iambic verse, which works very well in German, as it does in English. And German and English both tend to um, alternate stresses and unstressed syllables in, a, in a, a fashion which is easily regularizable. Um, but he also wrote um, lots of short rhymed stuff, um, stanzaic poetry. And the characteristic form is unrhymed and very irregular. And the two greatest difficulties I think I encountered, or the, 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 things, the things which combined to make the job difficult, although I agree with David that it was always a con very congenial job, um, were the, the sense that if it's irregular and unrhymed, the lines are all different lengths. Where is my poetic voice? Where is my sense of poetic rhythm? Am I in danger of writing chopped up prose? How can I um, guard against that? And then combined with that, this, these shifts in register which are hugely attractive, but they're also quite difficult to pull off in translation because it might look like, or feel to yourself even, as if you've just made a mistake, as if you just let the tone slump. You know that Brecht's done it as well, but of course in translation it's more difficult to pull off. Um, so, so those were things that I, I yeah. felt, felt very wary of working yeah. through this. I was, uh, certainly when we, when we started off, I, I feel I've learned an awful lot in the process of doing this. And ideally, I'd go back and do them all again now. Um, but when I started off, uh, I was always happiest when there was a rhyme or when there was some formal stringency which I could imitate because then I felt, at least I've got that to hang on to. And there was a sort of element of doing it like a, um, a crossword puzzle or something like that. The words got to fit. The lines got to fit. Um, and it was a great discovery to, to find that I could escape that as well and that I, I felt I'd, I'd developed sufficient a voice to translate the, the poems that didn't have that framework. Should we pause and yes. if now we could ask if there's anything that you yeah, either we, that we've we thought, already said or, the, or that um, you think we might not be going to say? Um, we thought we'd like to open it up to, to you to ask us things because then you direct the direction of the, the conversation. Yes. Did you consider uh, doing parallel, I know it's much too big for a book, but parallel texts in you know, German and English, so the reader can appreciate what you've done. 
it was simply never suggested that we would be able to do it. They're, they are immensely valuable, such, such books. Blood Axe does a lot of those. ARC do those. Um, I mean, some smaller, so-called smaller publishing houses, always, they're always dual language. And as I said earlier, you can learn an awful lot, even if, you do, if you're not fully familiar with or good at the language in question, simply by looking across. You can check the line endings to see whether it rhymes or not. And if they're rhyming, are these similar sorts of rhymes? You can, um, and, and you can sort of rehearse the sounds in, yes. in, in your mouth, which yes. makes such a difference as well. I would love to, to do some parallel yeah. editions, yeah. and I hope that's something that the publisher would consider somewhere in, in the future. Now that we've done this, one could take out a selection, and you could do one of Brecht's own little collections and do it as a dual language thing, that would be a wonderful thing to do, mm. um, but not the first time around. Yeah. Yeah, I just wondered about rhyming, translating rhymes. Um, do, you, do you often say to yourself, well, it's, I can never get the equivalent of English, so I just go without the rhyme? Uh, I've, since Wilfred Owen, the, the chief, it's not, it's not even a sort of standby. Almost the chief way of doing it, if you're writing your own poem, is to not just allow, but rejoice in half rhyme. And as soon as you allow or rejoice in half rhyme, then when you're looking for a rhyme, you've got the entire vowel spectrum to hit it. And, and that gives you scope within... within we know what the, the real problem is if you're trying to rhyme full on all the time. You do precisely what you've suggested, really. And an awful lot of very bad romantic verse, you can see that they've got that far because they needed a... Or a rhyme occurs to them. That's even worse. The rhyme occurs to you, and then you think, well, it's a jolly good rhyme, and then you've, you fit something in which is not really very useful or helpful or beautiful. And as soon as you allow yourself half rhyme, and I felt no compunction about doing that because it's been in the language since 1918 and before a bit, but with him, then then you're freed up, and, and rhyming is lovely because you can come very close, you can have absolutely full rhymes, or you can move quite far apart. Um, I, I see no worse problem about rhyming than about doing anything else as soon as you allow half rhyme. I had a very bad experience when I translated Rilke poem, and when I looked at it first, it was in rhyming stanzas, I thought, this is going to be easy. Uh, I thought I finished. I thought, I should have never... <laughs> I, I agree with, with David, but I do actually like full rhyme. Yes. <laughs> and there were some poems that did seem to demand it, particularly there are quite a lot of um, children's poems and ditties and songs where in a degree it's actually about the rhyme and yeah. it's about the silliness of rhyme and, and that had to be, had to be retained. So I did spend quite a lot of time wrestling with finding rhymes that would, would work, full rhymes that would work. Um, and in some of the poems, I, I, again, I think led by David, I, I allowed myself to establish a rhyme scheme, but then become much looser with it as the poem went on, which is actually something Brecht does as well. Mm. He quite often establishes a form, a, a, a rhythmic form as well, and then actually plays pretty fast and loose with it. So the rhythm plays more of a role. Rhythm symbol. Um, more of a role. I, um, uh, it depends on the poem. Yeah, it really does. <laughs> um, but the, the thing about this sort of kind of deliberate laxness that you, 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 Tom's exactly right. He will set up an exact, you know, an usual quatrains A B A B, and it would be five feet, say. But then suddenly there'll be a six-foot line or even a seven-foot line. And he knows perfectly well what he's doing. It takes, there's a, there's a, it's a deliberate interruption of an aesthetic construct which he doesn't want to adhere to at that point, so he just moves it. Or the rhyme scheme will be A, B, A, B, say. And then he'll suddenly, in the last stanza, it'll be A, A, B, B, and why not? Or A, B, B, A. And, and when he was allowing himself those liberties, and not just them. I suppose it's this, that if you see a poet regularly doing that, and he happens to have done it here, then in a sense you, freed, you, you feel yourself freed up to do it elsewhere, providing in the exactly new context you're not ruining the thing. So if you, uh, it's the great thing about translating an entire corpus. There's an awful lot that he allows himself. 
So that's a liberty. At the same time, you have to be terribly careful that you're not taking liberties in the wrong place because some of it is, is deadly serious, strict. I mean, it goes with the, with, with the respect being paid for the form that he's... And you can't just fool around with that because you, you're having a bad day and you can't think of anything that rhymes with anything. So. <laughs> Sorry, I was wondering if we should have a, an example, but the book's so big, I can't find my way around in it. <laughs> there, there, there are some in the, in the, in the class, in, uh, in the, not class, but close reading kind of thing. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk through, but I might find, find one. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I just wondered whether you lost sight of yourselves whilst doing this project, in particular your own writing. Well, it's a very interesting contrast between us that David is, of course, a, a poet with his own voice as a poet, and I'm not. Um, don't know what to say next. <laughs> um, and, and, and that was a, a source of great anxiety to me <laughs> at the beginning of the, of the process. Um, but I very much felt myself discovering a voice which would, which was adequate to Brecht. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I speak as Brecht. I don't, don't mean that at all. But it wasn't mine. I wasn't speaking as myself either. Um, it was a sort of... <laughs> I have to sit differently. It was a sort of pose I put on thinking Brecht, and the words came slightly differently thinking Brecht like that. Yeah. So I discovered a voice doing it rather than, than losing a voice. Um, and I'm almost tempted to say that I might quite like to try writing something of my own as a result of doing all of this, but I say that as tentatively as possible because I haven't actually got that far. Tom's the most modest man on the planet. You ought to, <laughs> to realise that. It's very interesting, this thing, and it's something that translators who also write their own verse um, ponder endlessly. When you're writing a poem, and Brecht insisted on this himself, you have to have absolute autonomy. That is, the zone in which a poem gets written comes about is autonomy. It's an autonomous zone. That does not mean it's separated from the world we live in, absolutely not. But the actual making of a poem is an autonomous act. And, and that's the deep moral value of poetry is precisely its autonomy whatever its subject, when a poem works. Now, when you come to translate, when, you, when you're writing a poem, there's a blank sheet of paper, if you do it in the old-fashioned way, and uh, there's a pen or even a pencil, and you're writing. As you start to write on this white sheet of paper, you can't actually know, or at least in my case, you can't know, whether what you're writing is on the way to the poem or in the way of your ever getting anywhere near a poem. <laughs> Because as soon as the white sheet is, starts to be covered, then you're, you're being shifted. If it's a happy undertaking, then line by line, you're trying to realise something which is in your head, realising the sense of make real on the page. So you start with a white sheet of paper. When you translate a poem, it's there. There's a white sheet of paper with text on it. So in the translation of a poem, they are only absolutely successful, these things, even then it's relative, if you can make of the foreign original a poem in your own language. That is to say, something which will have the autonomy of a real poem, of a, of a poem in your own language, and the sort of uh, tone of voice in which you would be writing yourself. Now, that's, that's an impossibility, but the struggle is interesting. It's a struggle between... between autonomy and service, because every translation is an act of service. And in ideal circumstances, you're doing it because you love and admire the, the writer whom you're translating. It's an act of service because you actually believe, Tom and I certainly did, that putting this into circulation is a good deed. We will do it as well as we can, and it may be bad, but actually it's a good deed because we want poems like that. In fact, we want world poetry. We want it more than ever, frankly, in circulation so that more people can read it. Now, the reading experience will be a good one if you've succeeded in making poems. 
but it's the old Beckett, try, fail, try again, fail better. I mean, it really is, it really is that with, with, with translating. Now and then you think, ah, oh, that, that, was, that was okay. And then it is, I suppose, you should, <laughs> it is the case that you've hit on something which is your own tone of voice. And in a peculiar way, it doesn't quite work unless it is your um, own tone of voice and not anybody else's. It's immensely, I mean, it's, that's the crux of it, is, is freedom and service. Not servitude, but service. You're trying to serve a foreign original which you love and admire. And that's, that's a colossal privilege. I can't tell you how, what, what an undertaking that is. When it, and, th and there are all sorts of, of more wacky and creative and, I don't to say, arrogant translation. People depart more and more and, and, and enter their own voices. Um, but that wasn't what we wanted to do. You know, the, this, the question of the brief that you've got, I mean, there's quite a lot of drama gets translated when, when people think, well, I'm, I shall update this to now, and they take the text and they basically rewrite it. But if you're putting into circulation a collected poems of Bertolt Brecht or... I've you know, translated other things, I did, did Faust, and people want to know that this is not just you, as it were, having idle thoughts about Faust and setting it, <laughs> and setting it down. There was a tradition, like, I, when I translated Goethe's uh, Elective Affinities many years ago, and on, on a market in the south of France, in a place called Vontarol, I came across a French translation of uh, Goethe's Elective Affinities, and I bought it. And it's perfectly obvious what the French chap was a chap, had done is he had the German there and he took a glance at the page, roughly ingested the content and then wrote fine French. I mean, literally, you've got very nice French. And then he'd look at the next page and he'd think, well, what's this foreign chap trying to say? You know? Then he would, he would write fine French. So as a sort of, well, you've got a, a nice fine French sort of pseudo 18th century. It was very nice. <laughs> Um, can you say something about balancing what's behind what, what Reich, in this case, is trying to say, the, the message, with all these other things you've been talking about? Well, tr translation is, is a sort of very rigorous, close reading. You, you want to attend to everything that you can see in the poem. And because you sit over it for a long time... You can see a lot. <laughs> you can imagine that perhaps that little gathering of harsh sounds at the beginning of line four might be important. And you can, and all of these things are crowding in your, your mind at the same time. Um, and so, uh, as David really said, you're always aware of what you've missed or what you had to leave out, what, where you failed. Um, Although sometimes, I think I would add to that, you're also aware that serendipity has allowed you to introduce something, maybe somewhere else, which is doing something somewhere else in the poem, right. which is doing something not a million miles from what Brecht was doing at this other place in the poem. So you allow that sort of thing to happen as well. As far as the, um, the message is concerned... Um, it was absolutely important to us to be true to what Brecht was, was saying. And as I said, his reputation is as saying things very directly and clearly to us. And often he does. Um, and it's not difficult to, to pick that up. Sometimes it's more confused obfuscating than that and you're, and you're hunting around a little bit for a, a sense of meaning or direction or a particular force to a, to a comment um, and so there is a process of interpretation which is um, involved in translation as well uh, and sometimes where Brecht leaves maybe many possibilities you do actually have to settle for a bit of a line um, and we did this, or I did this, by 
knowing Brecht's work very well yeah. by reading around and the rest of Brecht, by knowing what sorts of things he was thinking about and writing about elsewhere and, and supplying all that sort of information in, in the translation of a, of a, of a line. Um, but the, that, that is part of the process of translation. Now, and since David says I'm modest, I'll give you an anecdote, which is quite the reverse. Um, I was at a conference in Leipzig the other day, and a German professor came up to me and said, um, thank you very much for your translations. I'm writing on Brecht's poetry, and I sometimes have a look at the translations to get a hermeneutic um, beginning, a, a tip um, as to how to read a poem. <laughs> 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 it was really, a nice compliment anyway you've really, you, you really hit the big time <laughs> well, that's terrific nobody's ever said that to me no the Brecht suffers in, in England and America I think Britain and America by being thought of as somebody who preaches the whole time was a hardline Marxist and tells you what's what and, um, that's not true of any of the plays even and what we did, I think, learn is, well, he says himself, you take the contradictoriness out of a text and it's dead. And whatever Brecht, as it were, wish was that you might indeed um, adopt these particular politics, the poem always, the good poem always exceeds the poet. That's axiomatic for me. So in the making of the poem, as Tom says, there are embedded in the poem ambiguities, other possibilities, which we can illustrate this. It's actually quite easy. There's a, there's a technique in Brecht, particularly in these, which are, which are irregular lines and, and no metre. You'll be reading along like that, and you'll think, OK, I've got that. And the last word of the line will be, but. <laughs> so you'll be going along, and you've got it, and then comes a but, and then you go over the line, and the break is exactly there and only there. And suddenly you're confronted with something which, which is actually if not a flat contradiction, at least a strong relativization of what you first read. Now, it may be indeed that the poem in the end is trying to urge you towards one way of social living rather than another, but these structures themselves are not doing that. These structures themselves are doing what poetry at its best always does. That is to say, something takes place in the mind when you come to the end of a line and you think you've got it, and there's an indicator with a bot that you haven't. There's a pause. It may be only a nanosecond's pause, a hesitation, because you don't quite know. And that hesitation is the, is the deep value of verse altogether. It causes these, in a good poem, I could almost say endless little hesitations, nanoseconds of hesitation, because you think you've got it and you haven't. And just the pause in which you try to fit it is valuable, because that's the very opposite of prejudiced thinking it upsets you minutely you may not actually know even that it's that it's happening but it does and that going on if you like those goings on in a poem are not linked to any particular virtue or politics or slant on life even it's just something that a poem does and it is in itself deeply deeply valuable and he understood what he was doing and we'll look, um, yeah, it's actually, it comes in the, in, the, in, the, in the thing tonight. There's a poem called uh, The Doubter. And he was a great one for thinking that, you know, um, honest doubting, rigorous honest doubting was the way to change the world. Absolutely correct. But if you once instill in people the habit of rigorous, honest doubting, why should you rein it in here? How can you possibly say, you've now arrived at the truth, you won't need all that doubting stuff anymore, you know? You just do as you're told from now on. Now, even if he thought that, which he didn't, once he's put this abroad, there's absolutely no way of reining it in. So a habit of mind, a way of looking at the world, has been, if not actually brought to birth for the first time, at least made more confident. And that's the great value. And really, there's not much difference then between Brecht and Wordsworth or Keats or any of them, because they're all making this shift. The imagination thinks that, you know, actually looking at things differently is, what, is what's, what's going on, and that's why it's so valuable. And they're none of them dogmatic. 
Brecht is never dogmatic, even if he's even if he's writing a song, which is a commission from the Central Committee of the Communist Party. There's always room for other points of view um, to doubt. And it's always set in such a way, maybe in juxtaposition with other poems as well, so that there's always room for questions. It's extraordinary the bad press he's had, really, and the wrong apprehension of him that there is, as this kind of dogmatic Marxist who's telling you the truth. His plays are like that as well. I mean, mm. people think that they're ramming messages down their throats, but it's only because they're not paying any attention that it's very hard to say in so many words what the message would be of some of these plays. They end with questions, nearly all of them. Just picking up on that point, a year ago I saw Life of Galileo in Oxfordshire. Yes. And it blew me away. I don't think I've been sitting here I haven't seen it because it's so complex. There's so many different ends and morality going through it. Yeah. And it, it just, I just walked out of I've just been educated. Yeah, yeah the, the, the dilemmas that, that Galileo finds himself in and the dilemmas that we have judging if that's our role or, or assessing um, to what extent he's been right or wrong to pursue his life as he has. Yeah, it's a complex, it's a complex play. I've just this minute remembered we were supposed to repeat the question that people... Is it audible at the back? Yeah. That, uh, the the uh, last questioner just said he'd been to a production of Galileo in Oxfordshire and it was that and the awareness of the complexities of that play that brought him along. Yeah. Yes. Talking about something slightly different, I'm very fond of... Willett's edition, um, being the only translation yeah. that I know, um, how did you look at that one? I mean, or have you compared your translation to his? I mean, how far did that journey go? Um, Can we just say what? The, the question was if people have known John Willett's edition before, which this lady admires, and so do we, how much did we pay attention to Willett's? translations when we were doing our own? Well, the first thing I'd like to say is that it's um, one of the horrendous consequences of the publishing politics that I was talking about before, that um, that volume is out of print and will not be revived again, at least until copyright comes to an end. One of the reasons, and one of the other reasons why I wasn't allowed to proceed with my first idea of how to do this was that publishers told me that the copyright position over the versions in that volume was so dubious that they didn't want to touch it with a barge pole. So they weren't prepared to take the risk. They didn't know who had the rights in the various parts of it. It's, but it's completely... I mean, international copyright law is, is a scandal. <laughs> um, and, and there are lots of fine translations in, in that. And obviously, we would like it best for the two volumes to coexist. Um, we didn't consult it. Um, well, we were very careful not to look at other people's translations before we embarked on our own. Um, we did sometimes look across afterwards in the spirit of checking what we'd done and seeing whether we'd made mistakes. It's really the same thing that David was talking about at the very beginning, it, it's to make sure that you have actually got it. Um, so we didn't adjust our, our versions or, or accommodate them to these. And some of, sometimes I think the versions in the John Willett book are fantastic. Sometimes I don't. <laughs> um, and and that's, you know, that's in the nature of the beast, really. And sometimes they're extraordinarily similar. There are, there's one famous poem, which I think is also in the programme tonight, um, Questions of a Worker Who Reads, which is honestly set out in such a plain and straightforward way by Brecht that it leaves the translator very little leeway. And there are three published versions in, in English, and I would guess neither of them cribbed at all from each other, uh, uh, but they're very, very, very similar. Mm. There simply was no leeway in that poem. Um, in lots of other poems, of course, the, the difference is maybe very great. Um, 
And there were a couple, I should also say, where the John Willett version was so in my mind already that I couldn't translate in ignorance of it, but I still tried to distance myself from it and think again, rather than just letting myself be guided by it. The point about previous translations is very important, I think, and what Thomas just said is exactly my practice. That is, never read any of them until you've done your own, and then do. And again, when I did Faust, I did Faust, and then I, put, I gathered around me four or five versions, and I checked mine against everybody's for lexical error, not to see if I could improve it a little bit here, because I wanted a text in place that was my tone of voice, my rhyme scheme, my meters and all the rest of it. But what I didn't want to do is make mistakes, be making mistakes. And I also, in that same, in that same intention, had the text read by two or three people very close to me and watching for the same thing, really. So, but unless you proof yourself against other versions, you, you won't hit this tone of voice, which seems to me to be kind of in, integral, to, integral to any real success. So. And, and I learned that through... David, you absolutely have to have the confidence in your own voice that you can do this. And as soon as you gather props around you, that yeah. is fatal. Can I just sorry, make one more point? Yeah. Um, when I just had a very brief look before this session at your copy, I just sort of just opened it and had a look. Yeah. And I was very pleased that the language and the, the syntax and the way it's placed on the page seems very contemporary, quite modern, and, and Willett actually um, looks quite dated, even though it's you know, maybe 30 yeah. years ago, but it, there is a, a difference in the style. But I've only just had a brief look. The, the, Should I repeat that yeah, one? Yeah. So this is a question about uh, how translations date and whether we went for a particularly contem contemporary voice. It, this is, this is one of the sort of inbuilt um, likelihoods of failure in translation. Um, OUP and Penguin translate their world classic series roughly once a generation. They don't even trust it. They just think this is now bound to be... That's prose, novels and stuff. And on the whole, uh, it, it's interesting. It's, it really is interesting. It's quite hard to see why. But only exceptionally good translations, which are poems in their own right, survive. Most of them simply don't. They, the original soldiers on merrily. I mean, you, you can still read Shelley, but you can't possibly. Or you can still read. You can read Heine. You can read Murica. Translations of Murica into English date in about two weeks. I mean, <laughs> unless they're very, very good. And the fatal error that people sometimes make is um, it's this curious business, which Tom's already mentioned about bathos and, and levels of speech. If you pitch, if you think, well, this has got to be really wacky, I will, I will use the language of the streets now, it'll be dead on the page before it reaches the publishing house, let alone published. And that's it's curious, that, but it's, it is just a fact. All literary language that works is highly stylized. That is to say, this is not the language of, of the streets. It's a, it's a, lang it's a highly literary, highly stylized version of, of the language. And unless you manage to you realize that, it is absolutely fatal to think all I need to do is put it down how people really say it. It's, it's a dead end. The naturalists worked that out. They didn't actually work it out for themselves, but it was perfectly obvious by the time they'd finished that naturalism is a cul-de-sac. So you're never going to get anything either in... In, in, in your own language or in a translation if you simply aim to reproduce the language as it, you think it is now, particularly now when it's, it's absolutely shattered into countless vernaculars. It really is. I mean, that's a very good thing, I'm sure. But it, it, I mean, it would be laughable for me to try to imitate the language of, uh, of my eldest grandson. <laughs> I just couldn't do it. I mean, you know, he'd laugh in my face if, he, if I... Let alone, you know, if, I, if you look at East Oxford Primary School, the kids coming out there, growing up like that, this is the world's languages in fragments all around you. So you've got to hit a literary version of it and not be ashamed of the word literary. Highly stylized, actually, whether it looks highly stylized or not. 
When we um, started off, um, Barbara Brecht, again Brecht's daughter, um, encouraged us to, she, she was worried, she said that she would die before we finished, and so she wanted us to do something quickly, and that's really why we did the little volume of love poems, which came out several years ago, which we did first. And Barbara was right, she did die, she saw love poems, um, and she never lived to see the, the big volume. Um, but when we were doing love poems, we had some um, little arguments <laughs> with the publisher, because it's an American publisher, and uh, they were very attentive. Um, they read everything, which not all publishers do. Um, they read everything very carefully, and they annotated and made comments, and they suggested we changed words here and there as well, which didn't always go down frightfully well. We were very happy to avoid words which would create completely the wrong impression in American English. But there was a sort of suggestion that we might move to something mid-Atlantic. Fatal. Which we absolutely <laughs> refused to it's do. It's, it's we, a non-language. We said, you've got two English translators yeah. translating this, and it will be translated into English-English, and that's your lot. If you want something else, you're going to have to employ different translators. I, I, I once heard somebody... Um, I shan't say his name in case I've got it wrong, but it was a very reputable and, and successful British novelist who said that he actually wrote in a way that he thought would be easier to translate or be equally intelligible to British English. And, and it's, it's the way of death. I mean, it's, it's, it's a pointless exercise. And we had... Norton were exemplary, and I found this with Americans quite often, actually. They say what they think, and they expect you to argue back. And if you don't argue back, you're letting... You, the, the game's not on, really. So when they said you can't use the word nigger because of all its offensive connotations now, and why don't you put panties instead of knickers? And, nigger and knicker. <laughs> knicker's very important. And stuff like that. <laughs> then we said what Tom's just said, that um, this will only... I said, you know, we read American poets, there are lots of words that I don't immediately know in contemporary American poetry, but uh, it would be awful if they felt they had to sort of put in a word that, that somebody with you know, with our upbringing, would immediately understand. It's just, it's just not on. You, it goes back to this business of, of your own voice, of, of hitting your own voice, which is the language... I, you know, there's quite a lot of words which are dear to me because my grandmother used them, that, that I grew up hearing around me. They're turns of speech. The only, the only accent I can remotely sort of reconstruct is, is what it was like at home, and which was particularly when my mother and my grandmother were speaking to each other. It's the only true tone of voice that, that I've retained, actually, in certain, and that surfaces quite a lot. And unless they allow you access to those origins... <laughs> Tom's quite right, the word fag in, in, in English and American means two completely <laughs> different things. And, um, so we'd avoid that. We avoided that. But nigger we put in, and they, they allowed it, because we said, actually, the way Bresch uses the word nigger in the 1920s is, is, is a word deliberately used there to indicate a vitality of living, which is absolutely the contrary of the effete and absolutely clapped out post-war generation in Europe as they understood it. It's jazz, it's all that sort of vigour of the music and so forth. A lot of cipher for anti-decadence. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you have to use the resources, your own resources, and, and as fully as you can, and, and, and actually Brecht is the fantastic model in that because uh, he is, is a creator of the language. German is a language where it's quite easy to make up new words because um, you can stick things together in various ways. But Brecht does that an awful lot, um, more than, than many writers. And time and again, I would, would hesitate over a word where it was perfectly clear from the context what it meant, but it wasn't a word I knew, so I thought maybe I should check up. And I do a little internet search and discover that the only instance that anybody could find in Google Books or wherever it was, was Brecht's use in this particular poem. <laughs> he was great in his use of neologisms. And of course, we couldn't quite imitate that in English, but we still have to use our own resources to the full um, in order to come somewhere close to that. Is, yeah, just is, is the German word for nigger, um, has that changed? You know, with modern sensibility, uh, I mean, or... Oh, yeah. I find that yeah. really interesting, yeah. because if you're 
presenting your translations to a, you know, a university audience or something. Plenty of black people and stuff might be there. Do you, do you acknowledge that in any way? Do you, do you... There was, we, it's happened that they came up in the, in the love poems, mostly in, in, in the ones that, that I did. And so I made a note at the back about why we were using this word and the, the various occurrences. There was, there was, he uses Schwarzer, black, neger, negro, and nigger are the three words that he uses in German. So nigger comes up in German. And there, and, and there's a, there is a kind of distinction between them at times. And, and I tried to map them. So there's a note about it. Um, but it was all praise to Norton for saying, okay, we see your point. And, uh, you, you must do it. They, I think they, they um, disallowed, in the end, nothing. And the really good thing was when it came to copy editing, which is often a nightmare. I mean, it gives me sleepless nights thinking about it before, <laughs> actually, even before you sit down and say what they're suggesting. But the, 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 the woman who did that was absolutely exemplary. Again, she went through the whole thing and said, this is British English, American English would be this. And then you just say, no or yes. It's entirely up to us, all the way through. You stet it, or you say, OK, I accept that. And that was perfect. Very professional. Right? Um, I went to a presentation by Andrew Marshall earlier in the festival, mm -hmm. and he was saying that poetry is essentially breath work. And I was thinking that one breathes differently in English and German, and I wondered whether this was something that you were conscious of, or whether actually this is just the same thing as voice, or whether it's something different and separate. The, the question was a, a remark by Andrew Motion to the effect that poetry is breath work, yeah? And is it therefore very different if you're translating from German, and whether the breath of, of German is? Yeah, no, I, th I think there are, um, I, I don't think it's the same as voice, and I don't think it's the same as rhythm, but it's somewhere in between the two, perhaps, or, or it's a component that um, they all belong together. Um, it's, it's partly to do with the um, speakability yeah. of, of the poems, actually how they, the, the rhythms and how they sound in delivery, um, um, where the breaks and pauses, the hiatuses are, and, and, and just the little bits where you're left hanging at the end of a line and things yeah. like that that David referred to. Um, and I think it is possible to breathe your way into, into equivalence in English. I suppose I would say... I was going to say the languages aren't that different again, but they are. Um, German has, has a, such a different syntax. Um, but I always... Well, I, where I did most of this work is at home has a little balcony <laughs> and I would very often step out onto the balcony and read it out loud <laughs> to the birds, speak it. You have to be able to speak yeah. it. <laughs> and, and I hope that helped me to find, to find that correct breath. But breath's important in the sense of um, German, if you, you, you know this, I'm sure, but if there's a subordinate clause, the verb goes to the end. So the German reading mind is used to waiting for sense to fall into place, right? Uh, there are practitioners like Hölderlin, whom I translated, where you may have lines of 18 lines of verse, which are all one sentence, and it's on not just waiting for one verb, but for another. Now, the, the reading experience of that is slightly breathless, in the sense that there's an anxiety until this thing falls into place. Now, English doesn't work like that. But if you say an essence of the working of this poem is a slight, is a breathlessness in the feeling of anxiety, but then you jolly well devise ways of, of doing that. What you can't do is, is, is if this is called hypertaxis, when you've got millions of subordinated clauses like that, you can't just chop it up into single sentences of, with a full stop you know, every six words because you don't want to put anybody to the stress of, of, of reading the whole thing. You have to not just imitate but recreate the feeling of, of the amount of breath necessary to, to, to read this. And The point Tom just made there, that Brecht is, is supremely a, a speaker of verse. These are intended to be... We should probably stop, should we? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was clear. <laughs>
Thank I think you. that's it. Otherwise, thank you very much.